Welcome to Innovation Mixtape, a custom series produced for Omers by Now or Never Ventures. We believe that changing a company from the outside is hard. That's why we have found a collection of gurus, pioneers, and creatives to help us explore market-changing and innovative ideas within pensions, age tech, and building ventures. You'll hear from executives at large organizations such as Standard Life, from some of the most creative agencies in the world, and from leaders who have built game-changing ventures themselves. We hope you enjoy, and most importantly, learn. Today, we are chatting with Alta ML. Alta ML conceptualizes, develops, and commercializes machine learning software products. Alta ML partners with organizations using a co-development model where they can provide their technical and strategic expertise to build transformative applications using applied AI and machine learning. They start first and foremost with the business use case with a focus on ROI and building new competitive advantages. We think Alta ML is particularly interesting for you to listen to, given their track records of success with AIMCO in Alberta, where many use cases and concepts will likely have already been identified that can potentially be applied to OMERS. Uh, sure, Corey Jensen, uh, co-founder and CEO of Alta ML. Uh, so we are a, a AI venture studio uh, with offices in Edmonton, Calgary, and well, soon to be Toronto as soon as uh, Ford allows us to finish off construction. Um, uh, I, th- I think uh, in a past life, you've got the background as a co-founder of Investopedia. We sold out to Forbes about a decade ago, um, so I've been adjacent to the finance space. Um, I, I think the re- real reason we're here is with Alphalair, which is our joint venture with uh, AIMCO. Uh, and we'll get into uh, a bit more of the detail into the structure and where there might be some some takeaways from that. But, uh, yeah, I'll uh, maybe turn over to Chad and just really happy to have the conversation. And, and if, there's, if there's a way that we can sort of share some experience that helps out, then, then all the better. Uh, yeah, Corey, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for a little bit of, of the background on AltML. So, uh, yeah, Chad Longer, um, I'm the general manager of AlphaLayer, which is our joint venture between uh, AIMCO and uh, AltML. Uh, I have a background in finance, did a BCom um, in finance, then worked at Investopedia with Corey many, many years ago. Uh, ended up doing my own startup after that. Um, the joke there is that did very, very well on the vanity metrics, not so well on the bank account metrics. Um, and then sort of circled back after a few years with, uh, with Corey and, and, and sort of been in the, in from the start on the Alt ML side. I was leading up product and then, um, I've always had a passion on the investment management side and the, and the finance side of things. So when this opportunity came, came about, I, I sort of grabbed it as quickly as I could and, and have been running with it, um, for the last little while here. Brilliant. So guys, like, tell us a little bit about like, give the context of Alta ML and then how that equates to AlphaLayer and what you guys are doing with Inco. Sure. I, I, you know, the problem with any AI startup is in, unless you've got access to a unique data set, um, but also the problems are, uh, uh, of a sufficient, of sufficient enough magnitude, um, there's not a whole lot for the data scientists to do. So, um, you know, most of the good things happening in Canada are coming out of, of the U of T, um, and Montreal, obviously, with Element AI and um, strategy, uh, the companies there. Um, a lot of people don't realize, though, that Edmonton is actually the third stool of the uh, pan-Canadian AI strategy. Um, so we've got a tech ecosystem that is a decade behind the rest of the country, um, but equivalent talent pool coming out of the University of Alberta. And that was really the genesis for AltML, where uh, we have uh, our product components of the business, um, but it also services side to be able to go in and uh, prototype out 
um, under, well, understand those use cases, prototype out, and actually put models into production. Um, but then we can put our own capital behind those ideas and commercialize where that makes sense. Um, when we made this pitch to AIMCO, uh, you know, they were looking at the time and saying, uh, you know, frankly, we went in, did a really, really boring RPA use case. It was a step above RPA, put it that way, right? Like what Gartner might want to call intelligent automation. Um, but I, I essentially went in in the early days and said, give me a problem, name the price, let me know what you can do. And, uh, and so they gave us this one use case and, and what we really found as we went in is we probably spent as much time presenting the results of that use case as we did coding the thing itself. And the, the cultural change internally in terms of saying, oh, wait a minute. So machine learning isn't just about taking away my job or building robots that are, it, it's okay. It's, it's actually, you know, getting rid of some of the grunt work that I hate to do in my job. Or it's about, you know, creating tools that can help an investment professional make a better decision. Um, and so, you know, the fast forward a little bit and the pitch I made to uh, Kevin Ubelin, the CEO of AIMCO was, could you provide, could you create a situation that had the best of both worlds? The, the scale of a, of, of an AIMCO of a hundred billion dollar pension fund with the nimbleness and agility of a startup. Uh, and so I'll let Chad talk about the structure and the size of the team and I won't kind of totally still show it. It, it is his, is his group. Um, but the basic nature was to, to try to find this formula that allowed us to, to succeed, to take risks in the same way that the startup does. Uh, and, and, you know, all the cliches you want to have on fail fast and, and so forth. Um, but by having a unique structure that aligned interests that allowed us to both do projects internally, but then hopefully commercialize tools that we could take to the larger market. But Chad, maybe I'll turn over to you and you can talk a little bit more about size of team and structure and, and kind of the breakdown of those pieces, if, if that makes sense, Ian. Yeah, that makes total sense. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so we've officially kicked off Alpha Layer uh, about a year ago or a little over a year now. Um, the team has grown to 14, um, bringing on another person in a couple of weeks, so we'll be up to 15. Um, nine of those are data scientists, two software developers, uh, a data specialist, a project manager, and myself. Um, that would be sort of the key team structure today. We've, you know, we did a, a pretty big hiring ramp in the last three or four months, um, even during this, uh, COVID, uh, COVID, um, uh, scenario or situation that we find ourselves in today. Um, so we're probably digesting at this point and then we'll figure out where, uh, you know, the next resources will really come from and, and, and how to allocate those positions. But, but that's the team today. Um, in terms of our mandate, so the first mandate's really to focus on building those internal uh, solutions within AIMCO. And we do that across uh, fully across the firm. So front office, middle office, back office, um, we're not, we're not pick here, choosy in, in that type of way. Um, we're mainly focusing on three core areas. Uh, we're looking for operational efficiencies. Um, we're looking to drive or, or help augment um, alpha generation. So, so just working with the portfolio managers on different projects around that. Uh, and then lastly is building some tools around risk management. Um, so that's really where we, where we focus in on our efforts. Um, Corey talked about a 
few things there, just, you know, sort of that small bets fail fast approach. So we do a very phased approach to our projects. We'll do something very short term, um, one to three months, depending on sort of the scale uh, of the project and try to get to some, uh, you know, gate as quickly as possible and use that gate and whether there's success or we found something that's meaningful to really guide um, any additional follow on on projects. Um, within the first year we've done, um, we, we've depending on the phase, um, have started 17 different projects um, within within uh, AIMCO, um, spread um, mainly between operational efficiency and alpha gen and a little bit around risk management, moving a little bit more into that area right now. Um, seven, I, I believe seven of those at the last count have been integrated in various forms. There's one that we feel is fully adopted that it's, you know, it's completely replaced um, um, a task. Um, the other ones are in the process of replacing tasks, just working with the with the specific teams and, and really making sure that the product gets that full adoption. Um, and then we have uh, those alpha gen ones that are, um, you know, sitting along and helping either, um, you know, guide new research for for a portfolio manager or um, helping guide some of their decision making um, within their day to day processes. Um, so we've had a lot of great traction, which has been quite exciting. Um, within this, uh, within a relatively short period. Um, I think one key thing that, that maybe sticks out that Corey didn't mention, um, obviously we're looking to commercialize some of those things, but, but one thing within this structure is, um, we're very, very close on the projects with, you know, key individuals within Inco. So we're working tightly with, uh, um, you know, a portfolio manager or a, a department lead when it coming, comes to the operational efficiency side. And they're really guiding and providing us, um, you know, a significant amount of domain expertise um, that our, that our data scientists can really leverage. And, and, you know, they have that directional guidance or they're pointed in the right way. They're not, um, you know, they're not finding those mistakes themselves. They're been, they're being given the, the advice and, um, you know, the landmines for the team to watch out for as they're quickly iterating and building. Um, so that's really, you know, one takeaway. I think Ian and I were, uh, Ian, Corey and I were talking about that a bit. So I wanted to just mention that just we work very closely with their teams, um, and have, you know, very, very ongoing updates and they provide a lot of insight and feedback into the projects. Um, yeah, so I mean, so maybe at that point, I mean, I think that gives uh, the quick the quick overview of of you know what we're doing, and, and I think we could probably just move to a discussion and, and get into the the nitty gritty a bit more. Yeah, like how does it work? As a, I find it interesting when you do like joint ventures in this kind of form. Like, how does that relationship between what you guys have set up and AIM code, the roles and responsibilities, all the culture, the ways of working between the two groups? No, sure. Uh, Maybe I'll start from a structure point of view first off. I mean, we'll, we'll share as much as we can with obviously maintaining some confidentiality. So, so it is a joint ownership that there is a joint ownership piece of it. Um, we've, we've set up, uh, we've aligned interest in the way that unless we can commercialize and the assumption is that a problem that you have at AIMCO, you would also have at other institutional asset managers. Um, and so we're trying to find those opportunities where, where there would be uh, an opportunity for broader commercialization. Uh, if we've set it up in such a way that if we don't succeed at that, um, uh, AltML will have no economic return. Um, so the, the basic idea here is that we think that we can justify the investment within this group um, through the operational improvements. 
Um, and then if we can succeed in terms of what else we can take and commercialize, that'll be a good return. And then if we succeed of anything on the alpha generating side, uh, alpha generating side, it'll be an amazing return. So it's really that portfolio approach. Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit from a, the governance side of it. Uh, the key factor has been really having the, the C-suite engaged. Um, we're actually presenting to the AIMCO board on Tuesday. Uh, so we've got a pretty big presentation, got like an, a, a big session at, at the board meeting. Um, but having, having the, the Kevin Ublan, the CEO, having his, uh, support has been key, but the governance committee has been COO, CFO, um, you know, head, head of back office op- operations, those type of people in the group. So they're engaged in terms of the approval of projects. We execute on everything. Um, and, and I think a key though as well is that we've also given them specific rights for if there's secret sauce or alpha generating activities, we said, listen, that's got to be a side. Clearly that needs to be within the mandate of this. So of every project we do, of every 10 projects, you, a certain percentage might be ones that, you know, commercialization is off the table. And we're okay with that because there's going to be so many different use cases. It's just finding the right one that has the replicability or to go up further. So from a side of like, from the perspective of making the risk sharing work, there's like roles and responsibilities on your side that effectively, if it doesn't succeed beyond that, then ultimately it's not like the interests are effectively aligned. And then if there's things that are so sensitive, then they keep and retain ownership where you're not going to go off and commercialize them. And then the, the real upside is that bit in the middle effectively, right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 all the pressure's on us for, for to be able to actually find the reusable blocks, right? So, um, I mean, if not, Chad will just, well, we'll waste a ton of our effort and, and Chad will waste many years of his life if we don't actually, that would be a bad, that, we're, by a light, <laughs> and I mean, they say here, I throw Chad into the bus here, but like, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I think that's part of the key is like it's trying to establish something beyond a regular vendor relationship, because when you go in and start working with the security departments and talking back and forth and, and, and the, the extreme sensitivity of this, it's really again, it's that model of the best of both worlds. Like, you know, this Skunk Works project, that's kind of a twist on Skunk Works because it, the team is working out of our office. Like if you walked through AltML, you actually wouldn't necessarily know that it's an alpha layer employee. And so that's given us a ton of flexibility because as we have, you know, a deep team in NLP, for example, we can augment that and build on in various areas until alpha layer hires for itself. So we've kind of staffed it initially until we've known the plan and then being able to build up. So there's kind of a back and forth. Um, it's in our office, but we're close enough in downtown Edmonton to literally not have to go outside to walk to the AIMCO office as well. So that's nice. So it, there's separation, but not too much separation. Yeah, and you can really, you can easily find the alpha layer employees. They're the ones wearing uh, Patagonia usually. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious as to where the the problem sets come from. Is it Aimco going to you and saying, you know, we think this is a problem, or is it you having such a good understanding of the the data that you're coming to them and saying you should probably be looking here or some combination? Yeah, I think uh, you know it, it's it's a bit of a mix um, on that. Early on, what we did is we ran a bunch of idea generating sessions across 
um, you know, basically almost every single team. So I think there's 13, 14, 15, something like that, that sessions, two hour sessions or, or half day sessions that we would have done with them to really start figuring out where some of the pain points are. Um, so we used a lot of that to drive some of the initial projects and some of the initial thinking. You know, we're not coming in as, you know, investment management experts. We're not coming in as people who are living that day to day pain point. So um, I think it made a lot of sense to, to start there. Um, what we've been doing really since that is as we've grown our experience, as we're looking out more and more into the industry, we're really starting to think about, you know, where where is the power in AI? Where's the power in machine learning? And where can we bring that new lens or new view um, of this technology into um, into AIMCO or into the investment management process? So it's starting to morph more into a, a sort of 50-50 of where ideas are coming from. Um, we're like, you know, I, I've had two or three different meetings just this week of different groups or, or different people that we haven't previously talked about to expand sort of our coverage within it. And, and there just seems to be so many different um, opportunities and ideas. So um, we'll really nourish both both of those idea streams um, at this point until, um, you know, until we see which one dries up first. But um, it's, it's been great um, coming both ways. And for those ideas that you end up like prioritizing like how have you come to the ones that i don't know how much you share in terms of the specifics of use cases but how have you come to the ones that you've done so far versus versus others effectively yeah i mean i think we have um we have a couple of different um strategies around that we obviously you know have the governance committee that uh, Corey uh, alluded to where you know you have the c-suite involved who have a lot of experience and can help through the decision making process we'll do a lot of research with the team and try to understand you know what truly is the size of the problem um you know our expertise comes more in on the on the, on the cost of the solution and really figuring that out and then we can start backing out, figuring out some ROIs or some predictability around whether whether it's going to work out or not. AlphaGen, that's, you know, more difficult or significantly more difficult. So you rely a lot more on, you know, the head of public equities or, 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 or you know, those teams or the portfolio managers to really um, um, help us push that forward. Another layer down from the governance committee, we would have an idea generation um, council, as, as we call it. And, and that's another um, venue for us um, as a group to either pitch the ideas from the alpha layer team or from um, internal project teams. So if, you know, somebody on the treasury team has an idea, we would then take that to the governance or to the idea generation council, um, really think through it, talk through it in, in significant more detail. Um, and then if it sort of passed the muster, if the group's like, yeah, this this is really interesting, we go to putting together a project plan and then take that to the governance committee. So there's a lot of different layers of thinking before we really even start a project that that I think narrows down um, um, the viability of the project um, to the point that we want to actually take a bet on it. Um, and again, like with the, with the small bet, fail fast approach that that we do take, we're usually not making massive, massive bets. Like it's you know two to three months and and I, yeah, let, let, let me even add some specifics there. Like we're the one of the sort of our, our internal threshold is like keep it under 50k. Like if the project, if the first phase is over 50k, it's too big, break it down. So truly, truly go on this and go get, pop the hood. Is there enough data? Can we actually see line of sight to ROI on this? And having that, it's been a pain in the butt for us from a management point of view, right? Because we've got a whole bunch of these small projects, but it. Like one time we had this amazing use case and we jumped into it and I mean, this was in the early days and we hadn't fully fleshed this out and it got over that 
price for that point. But like we spent so much time because we assumed we could get, you know, the data from this one data set that comes to whatever, right? Like we thought we had the data. We really didn't. Right. And then so you go down this rabbit hole that, um, you know, because someone fell in love with the idea. And I think part of it is we, we've seen this with a lot of our larger enterprise clients, you know, outside of Alpha Layer is one of the biggest one of the biggest reasons why, um, you know, the, the, our largest partners work with us is because they have problems internally killing projects. And and so by by keeping it small off the get go and like running it truly like a startup, that's really helped. I'll also say that I think we really try. So that's on the prioritization. I want to say we've got a we end up approving most of it in the governance council because we do all this pre-work before it gets to that point. And now the problem that we're getting is there's so much at the top of the funnel because we we created. I don't know if I totally agree with I mean, Chad said we did these meetings. We, we left out some groups that were like really hard to deal with. And then as they started seeing results, now all of a sudden it's like, hey, why isn't my group getting this? Right. And and so. As we presented at the all hands and as we presented the management meetings and as we're more and more in regular, like, hey, this isn't just some vendor here. Like, this is us, right? This is AIMCO, but in a different format. Now, all of a sudden, we're getting a ton of ideas in top of funnel. And it's almost like it's good because you, 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 we're almost kind of playing the game of like that velvet rope, like the bouncer inside the bar, outside the bar, like just trying to like, OK, well, yeah, well, we need a, a better defined problem statement. And do you actually have the time to actually de- dedicate this because we need the domain experts? So. You know, once you once we were able to build trust, making that pitch has become easier over the last three months. But we would never have been able to do that on day one. Like on day one, fuck, security hated us. Everybody, hit, you know, like it was it was all about trying to actually, you know, build a relationship. I don't know, Chad, is that fair? Uh, maybe hate is a strong word, but like we got a lot of pain, right? Like, I, I, yeah, I think everybody everybody would probably appreciate the directionality, but yeah, hates hates a little strong. <laughs> No, and I, I, yeah, I, you know, that is sort of key. And I, I mean, that is those quick wins. It's, you know, that, that first project that we did really validated what we could do and how quickly we could do something. And then we've sort of seen that continued success that, you know, the team can deliver and, and you get more buy-in across the organization for sure. Um, you know, so we're, so we're really starting to leverage that and, um, you know, just even the willingness of people to share their thoughts and their ideas has definitely increased and, and grown. So uh, definitely excited about where we're headed um, and, and building that culture and, and and having some innovation or, or some new innovation within uh, within the company is is or within Amco is a is a great thing, and I think people are excited about that. So that's just an, another uh, benefit for, from what we've been able to do. And for when you like commence these projects, and effectively if you had ten of them, and some stay, some are sensitive and they stay internal, some don't yield a result, and those ones that do, how are you then effectively spinning them out beyond? Just being an AIMCO, um concept into something, or like an alpha layer concept into something that can be applied elsewhere. To, to be completely frank, it, and that's where we're at right now. We've got um, two or three candidates that it's about it's about going with the AIM, the AIMCO colleagues across, especially across Canada, and you know, like all the CFOs know each other, right? And then all and 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 you know all, all the people in business technology know each other and and so it's sort of testing loosely those ideas like i um right before covid happened i presented uh at uh, one of the investment can what's the publication chad the invest anyway it was weird it wasn't in it wasn't in toronto it was out like just uh 
just south of Waterloo and in Cambridge. It was weird that I did this conference out there. But um, anyway, so like we were going out there and actually presenting and we actually opened the kimono a little bit and showed some of these use cases. And if you're in the business, like, you know, the automation of a derivatives book is about the least sexy problem in the world. But we've spent like six figures trying to automate that. Right. And so we think that it the next step is finding partners the, the next you know partner number two to go okay this was the problem over here is it the same over here and then from that we think that'll be an alpha product that we can then roll out so stage gate it in terms of idea single client solution and then alpha might be one or two other clients and then as you put something into beta i think it might be ready to actually go to a, a larger market um probably across the canadian pension space but hopefully to i mean i don't know if it'll be like the black rocks yet but like I don't know. We've seen the deck of State Street and a few of these other companies internally. And it's like, I, we know we're on the right path because, you know, once you see internal plans, you started seeing these, especially in the back office, there's so much grunt work to automate out. Right. So, so those ones we think will be probably the clearest path to put AI into production within the space. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious as, you know, when you're out there talking to, you know, the investment managers and we've got the investment management side and also the pension management side. If you're seeing any opportunities for machine learning on um, more of the member side of things. So because AIMCO's, I, my understanding is it's different than like how OMERS is structured. So we, yeah. we are, I'm this close to getting an initial case with APS, which I think is the equivalent of your area within OMERS, um, Alberta Pension Services. I think there's overlap there on that. Um, so uh, yeah, it was Kevin, um, Kevin was saying, hey, yeah, like as we get things up and running here, let's have the conversation back. So as a good example of, I mean, it's different because there's different organizations, but when we were blocked there from a BE point of view, um, our colleague who was in the seat on the community, you know, heading of communications at INCO made the introduction over. So, um, knock on wood that, that's, uh, one of the, one of the few COVID deals that might actually get started here relatively soon, but clearly having the tie into INCO helped with that. So, um, there, there's, you know, my understanding of the space is like, uh, uh, you know, Chappelle, I mean, the, there's so much old technology in the space. It's ripe for disruption. And it's we're seeing because we've done work alongside like the workers compensation board here in the province and a lot like Blue Cross and much of the healthcare side, um, which, again, is quasi insurance. Like there's actually a lot of similarity in use cases. So, again, they're like the not the sexy alpha generation, but they're like within the call center and triaging claims and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, we're seeing a ton of opportunity there. We're just, we haven't taken on those projects yet though, because that's early stages. Yeah. And the only, like there's that one, there's one example that I think we use on the Alt ML side. There's that finish that the, like the finish pension plan where they did some deep learning models around trying to predict who would, um, who's likely to go on long-term disability into retirement. And what they wanted to do there was then mitigate that prior to like, while they're still in their earning years. So put them through some new programs or get them, try to get them back to work as possible or get them off long-term disability. So I, I know that's one that would be somewhat close to just, you know, sort of improve the overall payout structures. But yeah, we haven't, we haven't done a lot of thinking on that side just because it's not part of our, part of our mandate, but I'm sure there's tons as Corey sort of mentioned. Yeah. Well, 
everybody we've talked to like hates Morneau Chappelle and they're just like, there's so much we can do here. Why, like, wh- like, why are, why are we so far behind? Like that's, that's been probably a half dozen conversations along those sides. So anyway, you would know more. I'm sure your roadmap is like everything that's in there on it, but it's, it's like an area that we're super, super excited about just because again, because outside of alpha layer, it's like every large organization, it's like the CEOs want to take on these big, sexy projects. And our biggest battle, because and I'm, I'm talking a little bit from outside AlphaLayer, just so we're still a very small company. We're 80 people on the team. Like I said, AlphaLayer is 15 of that. So, like, almost every CEO or executive sponsor sees the Hollywood version of of machine learning, and so has like a swing for the fences, gigantic solution, right? And so we're always like, hey, that's a great idea. Let's go into an ideation session. Let's do this. So it's like it's trying to not piss them off while you're like trying to educate them that that approach is wrong. If that makes sense, like, you know, what I mean, because because we know that even if they say, yeah, we'll take this on, if it's a multi-year project, like the ones we've done like that have gotten nowhere. And, and then they run into risk after kind of six or nine months. So then if you're going into a client, like what's your ideal situation? Like in terms of the size of the data set that you have, the interdependencies between the teams, the type of leader, and I'm just trying to get a sense of where you can do, go the furthest, the fastest. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, amazing question, which I sit with my board and debate all the time as we're looking at like, you know, our ideal target personas. Um, you know, okay, there's there's two that have worked so far. Um, one, what might be surprising to you is the mid market, the mid market. I can always get to the CEO. We're like one step away from it. I've got super executive sponsor and there's usually not so many use cases that they can't go. Okay. There's a bunch in this area. So that hundred million to billion dollar kind of company, um, they've got large enough magnitude of the problems and budget, but like, it's not so unwieldy that you need to go through, you know, all, all the loops. I would say within enterprise customers, it is. Um, the most critical factor of success is having the true sponsor on the business side. And this might just be an obvious statement, but like every relationship, it doesn't, it, it's less about the company and more about the champion. So if our only champion is in IT, then we're dead. And so we've debated, frankly, like how do you politely decline those? Like if we can't get, so, so we've kind of changed our BD process now to see like, okay, this is great. Thanks very much for bringing us in, Mr. CIO, Mrs. CIO. Can, you know, like if, if you think of machine learning as a business led project with support from IT, who would be that champion that we could talk to? Right. And, and so like, it's always like that way. So, um, does that? Yeah, I know that, that definitely, that helps and it, it resonates. Um, and in terms of a, a, a data set, like I'm just thinking yeah. from our context, like we've got 500,000 members, a lot of data. Is that too much? Like, would you prefer that it's a specific problem of, let's say, someone calling in and we want to look at the last five websites they looked at and we can predict they're calling about, you know, X, Y, Z reason? But there's or, never... or like I find the problem that we need to solve. It, it, it's Go. a balancing act. So, so um when we do, like, when we look through our prioritization rubrics, and, like, I mean, I don't think we do anything there that's crazy. I mean, we've, we've probably done 50 or 60 prioritization, like, these whiteboarding sessions and going through. So, like, I, um, I, I, the initial look is let's go where there's all this data, and then we try to look at that in terms of 
early on, what is the ROI and just this balancing act, right? Because we've, we've gone down the path of going too much data and going like, for, okay, this is great. Forget about the data for a second. What is the problem and what's the magnitude of that problem? What do we spend on these members that come in? Either whether it's revenue improvement or cost side of it or risk side of it. Like, and let's put a number on that. Um, and then from that point, do we think there's enough? Like, I think that there's more of an issue with organizations saying, you know what, we're going to get to this after we build out a data lake. And so you spend like two, you're like, we're just going to actually make our data perfect. And, and so then we get cut off there because we say, okay, that's all great, but what data are you collecting? Have a data scientist or an ML engineer involved at the onset to help, like don't stop on your data lake project. We know we're not going to let you do that, but if, if you just call us in a year and a half, you're not even going to know if you have the right data. Um, so because we're doing POCs, we can usually um, minimize the effect on the IT department and like you need lots of data, but if, if, if an organization isn't like California tech, I mean, mo- we've yet to encounter a really, really good organization in Canada. And that, that might just because Alberta is so far behind. So I know that TD's further ahead and Scotia's spending tons and whatever, but like, most of the time they need shallow classical models. So it's like, you know, clustering and classification problems, you can get low hanging fruit without massive deep learning type data sets. Yeah, so, I agree. Do you find there's a difference between um, like solving internal more like B2B problems or like versus things that end up having a consumer impact at the end of it? Frankly, we're almost all B2B. I mean, we kind of, we kind of view like the access to data sets. Like we don't have any, um, I mean, we do deal with every, like we have relationships with all the, all the FIs in Alberta, right? So all the small banks, like we, we've got at least some projects on. So that's consumer facing on that side, but like it's still an internal B2B, you know, business problem. Um, I just, I just kind of look at it and think like, you know, big tech and, you know, the Alibaba's, Facebook's, Amazon's of the world are going to own everything on the consumer. So we kind of try to stay away where we don't get squashed. Like we see our advantage as marrying the domain expertise or, or building a partnership to get that domain expertise in very, very specific areas that aren't big enough or generalizable enough for, for, for Amazon to take on. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense in terms of like, I think like, from like Jordan, you know, understand this way better than I do, but like your kind of member challenges, like the member experience that gets offered compared to like the business back end that's actually powering that member experience. Like it's those kind of disconnects, I'm guessing, in terms of we, we, one of the original conversations we held on this was um, with Scott from Standard Life talking about how when customers get, get sent a letter, three days later, call vault sends a volume spike up. Like those sort of non-connected nodes effectively exist within the organization that create a pain point from a member experience because they've been sent something that they don't get as well as a pain point from the business side of things and being that it increases a load of cold volumes which gives a greater cost to serve or time like greater hold times or whatever that might be yeah yeah like don't get me wrong i, I sorry like the, there's quite a few of our problems have consumer elements of it like Without naming the, the clients, it, like, you know, health and utility spaces. Um, like we had one example, uh, our code name for it was like the good, the bad and the ugly. Cause it was like they had their call center and certain number of their clients coming in 
and they could only call, let's call it 20 or 25 percent of those uh, clients that had a bad debt that or didn't pay that one month. And what we did is as we looked at and, and went further into the data, it was like, you know, a third of them were you'll never collect. They were actually like some of the collections. A third of them would pay regardless. And a third of them are the ones you could actually work on. So their prioritization for that was just looking at size or whatever, and they could never actually get through. So bringing in that tool and, and then trying to go, okay, how do we actually build an, a predictive model for, you know, don't do the really bad, don't do the ugly, don't do the good, just focus on the bad, you know, that then changed the way they're actually able to, to materially improve their collections because they can reach out to the right people. So from a call center type of analogy, like that was like one sort of, and, and it's crazy how similar we've seen use cases on customer churn and those pieces of it, like using like sentiments analysis for churn, right? Like Canadians are just, we're passive aggressive and we don't actually tell companies when we're mad. So if you're looking at sentiment over a time series, there's, there's actually really interesting data there. We think there is in terms of like, um, uh, losing clients. Anyway, I could get into it, but so, so there are those consumer facing out applications and, and that, that are core to what we do, but we're always talking from the business side The the, the consumer would never see the AI. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think, you know, there's obviously like a massive move to that customer of one type of mentality. Um, and I think the way is like with prediction, you can create new scales that allow you to build towards that customer of one. So if you have this, like what Corey's talking about, if you identify that you have these pain, painful one third of your clients that, you know, need that additional attention, you can then, you know, obviously filter down, but then create custom sort of paths for them and then add additional predictions. So like maybe they need to be um, contacted in this certain way at this certain frequency and then a different time, you know, maybe it's just, you know, you know, once in a while or it's through this one medium and not another medium like chat or phone call or, or whatever the case may be. It, it's by creating some of that AI or creating some of that prediction, you can actually get closer and closer to that customer one, um, which then comes back, you know, not only for a better, better customer experience, but then better business outcomes. So, you know, I think what Corey's saying is, is 100 percent come from the business angle, but there's definitely a ton of applications of thinking about the consumer um, and thinking how they interact with what we're creating from the business perspective. Yeah. Have you guys had to build up any kind of AI or machine learning literacy like at AMCO or, or the companies you're working at so they know how to interpret what you're doing and they can kind of be self-sufficient or know how to look at the black box and see why a decision was made? Uh, huge. I mean, education is <clears throat> the biggest. I mean, we whenever we do these ideation sessions, they almost always start with an ML 101 and like I, I actually got into this business. I, I saw some of these profs at the U of A doing these presentations and losing the business audience in like, right, in, in, in seven minutes. So I don't know. I've, I've probably done my ML 101 in 2019. I think I did it 45 times or something like that. Like it was, it's like been a core thing. And then internally, we've almost always got pieces of it and core to them is they want to, they want to upskill the whole, I, you know, like, it's not about even it's understanding, Hey, there's a lot of use cases that aren't just black box. Okay. You know what? If we can't do this and it's not like, you know, there's this deep learning side that's here, but like you could you still use decision trees over here. Or there's other clustering. Like there's still other ways of getting. And, and if explainability is key, let's prioritize cases that actually allow for that. Right. So I think you're bang on Jordan. Like there's explainability as a filter and then the degree of difficulty 
in implementing is another filter, right? Like, you know, um, Aiken implementing a predictive model into a gas plant is a really, really difficult problem to operationalize, right? So the biggest companies in, in Alberta are having trouble with that. So that means we need to build a partnership with like the process control companies, right? Um, so having filled and it, we found that like if you can, they don't need to know the difference between like a CNN or an RNN. They need to know what type of problems can be solved and that we're not taking their job away, that we're building tools to help them make better decisions. Like, Realist, and then you go through like, hey, I'll send you our deck if you want. You can see it. It's like, sure. it might be laughably simple, right? But like, it's we get great feedback from it, and 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 then it, it's almost like it, it's a trust thing as much as it is an education thing, right? And then they just like they're open to listening. Yeah, like from everything that I've done, like nobody really cares about the menu differences between models and, and, and like getting caught into those weeds just kills the conversation. So it's, it's really in my mind about that translation and trying to figure out how you can solve the problem with this technology. They're less concerned about, you know, the, the minute details of the technology. And then that's actually a pretty hard part, right? Like there's a lot of the stuff where, you know, the problem's actually just an RPA or even before that, it's just like get a software developer to like write the rules and just get everything. Like you don't even yeah. need anything more than, more than like. That's a great example, Chad. Like there's one slide we have that's like, you know, the difference between ML and regular software development. Because the reason I created that slide is because we had it so many times. People be like, hey, I want to do something. Like, that's a great idea. Program that. If you know the rules, then program it. Right? You only take on an ML use case if you don't know the rules, right? Like, so, um, so what, when you've got the, when you've got defined business rules, this is not, this is not, I'm not saying it's easy, but like, go talk to your, go talk to your director of IT about automating this process. So in the, you know, in your experience in the investment management world, from what you've seen, like, what are the big kind of like five year problems that no one's really been able to solve yet? But machine learning would be a good candidate for that. Front office or back office? Either. Well, um, I, well, yeah, well, like, I mean, I think in the front office, it's just realizing that you're not going to develop, you're not going to develop a model that's going to, you know, beat everybody else and you're just going to generate an insane amount of alpha. It's going down the path of building out the team and the process that allows you to leverage some of this new technology to just stay ahead. Um, and, and like, as everybody would know here, like on alpha gen, like you're, you're really talking about like a 1% edge. Like you're not trying to like, yes, we'd all love to be Renaissance technologies, but they also started like 50 years before everybody else. Right. Um, you know, and, and the talent they have is unbelievable, but, but they're, you know, they started with techniques that nobody else started well, uh, uh, you know, statistical learning or just even using statistics and collecting data that nobody else was looking at. And, you know, obviously they're doing machine learning now. They're doing AI or anything in AI. They're, they're obviously doing, they're probably doing like quantum computing now, um, or they're doing things that we haven't even heard about because they're always just trying to stay ahead. So I think on the alpha gen, it's really just moving, moving in the right direction about building those, those, uh, the team and the process and the tools to just be able to, to continually strive and build new models and, and build new edge, um, wherever you possibly can to try to stay ahead and just keep that minor little edge that you possibly can. Um, I think, so, Fred, let me jump here. Cause like that, like 
over the next five years, like you we're describing what we wouldn't or what it is tough to do. And everybody thinks yeah. of the trading side. I think the, the biggest thing that will add alpha is actually generating new data sets from unstructured data that can actually be going into fact, into factor models. So, so what Chad started off there talking about, like if you build the platform so the PMs can very easily iterate, like, what people don't realize when they haven't done ML at scale is it's not about, it's not hard to create a model. Anybody can create a model. It's hard to manage models over time and watch for drift and watch for all these pieces of it, right? Cause like, you know, most companies say, Oh no, we're doing this. We're doing AI in this. And like the CEO thinks that they are, but like they've just got one thing and then they just set this aside and it's probably not even in production, right? So this overall platform to do it frequently. And then how do you bring in all these different data sets? So like, I think it was just horrible that Quandle sold to NASDAQ because um, it's a great Canadian business model. Like the type of idea that Quandle was doing in terms of creating new data sets coming out, um, we will see. I mean, part of what we debate is, should we just create another Quandle? Because like now, I mean, NASDAQ is going to drive them into the ground, right? But like there will be hundreds or thousands of new data sets that come out that I think add play there. The 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 easy stuff, we're going to automate a bunch of the back office things. We know we can get our way there. We think we can actually create some good products in that space. I think there's also even more on the risk side, Chad. Hey, like so much of this in terms of like, you know, various, you know, looking at different correlations that weren't seen. I'll give you a perfect example. So um, everyone understands you can use sentiments analysis across earnings called transfer, blah, 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 right? Okay, so we're building out ingestion tools to like bring in a ton of different and yeah you can start on earnings call transcripts boring right but what happens when you start sucking in all these other different data types and what happens if all of a sudden in real time you could say hey of our portfolio who's got covid risk how would we measure that covid risk right so you could if you started building that data set and you had that ability to look at sentiment or various text data that beforehand is not i mean it's not even in a bloomberg Okay, like that, I think will be a differentiator for cross board. But anyway, those are yeah, like they're free, right? Like building that is freaking is not a trivial problem. But like we're also trying to get enough wins along the way to go like, hey, this is a multi-million dollar endeavor, even in the next couple of years. Like, but like again, it's the swing you're describing the swing for the fences problems, right? How do we bridge the gap to get there, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think the only thing I'd add, just like on the operational side, it's, you know, obviously, you know, these firms spend tons of money on technology and they have, um, you know, there's a lot of existing processes. Um, I think a lot of those processes are ripe for innovation, but that's that's a non-trivial problem as well about, you know, if you were to build an investment management firm today from the ground up with the lens that you have of AI and sort of, you know, uh, an AI first mentality, it would probably look significantly different than it does today. Um, so I think in terms of like a five-year challenge is how do you, how do you move that, you know, that massive ship towards, towards a more innovative um, investment management firm leveraging AI. So but like Challenger yeah. Bank, Challenger Bank, and like Challenger yeah. Engine Fund, yeah. like, yeah. yeah, like those types of things. So I love that concept of Challenger Bank and Challenger Pension Fund. Like it's, it's, it's very pithy, but also probably very hard to do. But I love that idea of like, <laughs> if you were to build this thing today, it would not look like anything like it does today. If you were to try and go and change the history of it, it's a very big task with a lot of like legacy that comes with it to try and like effectively shut, like you're trying to move a container ship with a speedboat. But yeah. then like, what's the, each one has its like different models of like how could that make sense like moving forward? But like, 
from the side of how members get communicated through through how to your driving returns for those members, even through to like actually how can you tell which people are going to um, sign up to the plan and not? I think can be really interesting ways of like Jordan when yesterday you were mentioning like how many members there were in the plan paying into the plan versus drawing down from the plan and now like how that's completely shifted mm-hmm. I feel like that's a really interesting way of like how do you stand up the next generation or how do you like make it sustainable going into the future it's a really interesting way of both from the asset management side as well as the um, the member experience side of things yeah yeah and Corey I, I totally hear you on you know, having the big five-year swing for the fences, but also having to do the day-to-day stuff that earns you the credibility to work on the big stuff. And we're doing the same thing, just like basic service improvements for how you interact with the plan. We're spending our time there, but never losing sight of what's important and where we could go, which is why I'm asking the question to see, like, how do you actually bridge that gap and make sure that even though you're taking individual steps, like, are they directionally correct? And you're not just solving a bunch of problems, which add up to not much. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, like, our primary investor is, is actually not a VC. I mean, like, after, I mean, the biggest problem that I have in my business overall is the gap of, like, everybody thinks that AI is just like other SaaS companies, right? And, and I think even within IT, they're like, oh, well, this is just another software project. So why aren't you running this like another software project, right? So, you know, I know your mandate is broader in terms of digital transformation, but when we look at our lens of just AI, it's like, how are you supposed to lay out a plan when you don't necessarily know what scope is at the onset, right? It's about the process and the tools behind it as much as anything. And so the whole bet that we have on our company overall and on Alpha Layer is that we'll be able to find these nuggets there and then going out. When I gave that pitch to the VCs, they told me to screw off, right? And Element AI, Element AI was also raising money at the same time and just burned through like 100 million. So that didn't help. So like, like our backer is an insurance company, right? It's not even, and cause I mean, we don't have an owner's ventures out here either, right? So Inco can't be, is, is not an investor in Alta ML itself. And there's no VC in, in that. So I, I think this is the larger question across AI as an industry, not just within this, not just within, um, you know, the, the, the pension fund industry or or uh, anything specific to even Canada, right? Like it's yeah. the acquisitions that you've seen have been aqua hires. They've been like the layer six AIs or, you know, all the acquisitions for Twitters. Like, you know, you haven't, I, I actually think there'll only be a few big winners. I think the large organizations that adopt this will be the big winners. As, as sad as it is to say, like, I, I mean, you're going to see a whole lot more layer six AIs. It, well, we're kind of betting on it. We want to spin off a bunch of stuff and hopefully be a few of those, but we'll start with one, but you know. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, like from what we see in the pension industry, how, you know, we're, we're co-investors with AIMCO and a bunch of stuff. Like it's more of a partnership model, uh, even kind of like friendly competition rather than more cutthroat competition you'd see in like consumer packaged goods, for example. And I'm kind of open comment here, but like wondering if there's, a place for like a common platform for all this stuff in a similar way that car manufacturers are moving like, Hey, we're all building engines. We should just have one engine plant because we're all trying to solve the same problems with a limited uh, resource pool. Uh, totally. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's part of our hope in that. Again, if you talk about our product roadmap, I mean, that's, that's music to my ears. That's, I mean, like certain industries, like, like energy much more difficult because it's like there's this, this cultural combativeness there, right? And so we either have situations like say like an ATB, 
um, who's landlocked Alberta that can't go out. So like, it's easier for us to make the pitch in theory as to them to say, Hey, by the way, like you get Alberta, we want the rest of the world, right? But we'll all invest alongside you. Um, but like, that's not huge scale, right? Like, I mean, ATB is like a tiny, tiny percentage of whatever RBC, you know, I need a big four. Um, I, one thing we haven't touched on that might also answer Jordan is like, we actually see the second phase of our plan is not just internally at AIMCO, but also looking at its, uh, its investments, both, um, both passive and control. So we do have one project, for example, that's in within one of, uh, like, I mean, it, it's a hedge fund in New York, right? That had a bunch of interesting use cases that because we had this platform to your point on the platform side of it, like, the cost of hiring a data, they can't get a data scientist in New York City, right? And what they'd have to spend on that gets you a team in Edmonton. So we went down that path and had more flexibility. We wouldn't have gone down and done that same deal from Alta ML, but because there's a strategic benefit for Inco, it's like, hey, if we can get a win over there, let's do it. And now that's evolved into, hey, are there actually strategies we can build alongside with them and actually share on fees? Right. And, and so like that gets interesting. And then when you start talking about the, like the PE groups, it's like, okay, well, all of a sudden, if the CPP and OMERS are looking at this particular deal, buying some toll road or some solar farm or wherever, some infrastructure asset, can we add value as part of this? I mean, PE's done that for years, but they're adding value is usually just cutting people. Right. Okay. You genuinely could add an AI layer onto a bunch of it. And that was part of the overall investment process. That, that gets kind of cool, and that's sort of the big picture idea of what we're thinking of going like, if you've got the team and the process and the whatever, it's like, hey, what would it mean if we optimize the predictive maintenance on this wind farm in, you know, Uruguay? I don't know, right? Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, let's ask the PU guys, right? They're putting in $10 billion, right? Like, that's interesting. So that would be more the bigger picture idea from us, but kind of I, I would building on your platform idea, there's something there. But it, it's less uh, technology as much as it's a capacity. Or it's like, a, yeah, there's a bit of capability building there that certain capability is a better word. Sorry, yeah, better word. I love that though. It's kind of like you can see people like Ontario Teachers Pension Plan doing that a little bit with what they're doing with BCG, although I don't think they're doing it very well personally. But like, how you can go do that through not just adding value to the like to OMAS as an organization, but for it's there's so many different places to play that can creatively add value in different ways i think is really cool that is hopefully uh sorry you know i have to put down my canadian card here that hopefully is like actually built in canada so that we actually create organizations and high-paying jobs in this country but yeah i mean that that i i, I and maybe i've just been reading too much you know john ruffalo and bell silly but like there's a little bit of uh anyway i sorry i had i had to throw that in there a little bit just as like because we're seeing like you know you know, the, the big guys from, from, from the South coming in and, and anyway, like my hope is that there's a little bit of, of, of tech nationalism that can happen so that we actually have more opportunity here so that we're not like some outpost. But anyway, I'll get off I, my political soapbox. Sorry. Building it, like building it here and exporting it to the world is something that Canada has done much better at exporting to the world, but forgetting to build it here. So. If it can be built here before it gets exported, that's great. Yeah. Um, maybe a bit more of a direct question, but like in terms of for you guys, you mentioned when, um, when, when it's possible you're coming to Toronto, like how would, like, what do you want in terms of 
expanding UltraML into um, into this part of the world effectively? Uh, well, I mean, hey, I'm I'm a proud Edmontonian and a proud Albertan, but you can't build a big tech company without being in Toronto. So um, that's part of it. Uh, to be completely frank, our our lead investors made it a requirement of our deal. So we've it's, it's not a typical strategy to be a small a smaller startup and and be in three cities. Um, we needed to be in Calgary because we need to be close to the business decision makers in Alberta, and and we knew. We probably would have done it a bit further along, but because the, our, our lead investor asked, and, and so much of it is their portfolio tying there, we needed to be close. So, um, uh, so, so that, that, that was really the main driver. But even if, even if we didn't have that investor, I think you just, I mean, like we'll be, we're at 20 Victoria, right? We'll be two blocks from AIMCO. We'll be, Anyway, like you're, you, you just need to be close to everything there and, and you need to be close to if we do ever raise capital, close to investors. And and also, like, I don't think I'm going to be able to get like I, I don't think we're going to be able to get product people in Alberta that can scale massive software pro, uh, products. Right. So we're trying to build teams that have capacity from every city. So. You know, imagine if we're on the ground in Toronto, we've got, say, an insurance-related use case. We go out, you've got the product manager, a couple of the lead engineers, but then we've got, you know, 10 NLP people or five CD people or whatever they are back. And if we can build teams and, and put them together wherever, we think that will give us a competitive advantage beyond anybody just locally in Toronto. So maybe I'm just talking Kool-Aid and drinking my own Kool-Aid, but that's the thesis anyway. It's a great idea, Corey, great idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> My team tells me it's awesome. <laughs> no holes at all. It's just perfect. Um, I'm conscious of time, but does anybody have any other questions that people have to sort of jump up onto other calls? And um, it sounds like there's an interesting, like, 101 to a machine, le- a machine learning piece that might be relevant to share with, with Jordan after this. Sure. Um, but, like, so thinking next step or wrapping up and next steps and um, if there's opportunities to do things together going forward. Yeah, no further questions from me, um, unless the team has any. But yeah, I just want to say thanks. It's been really interesting. And my, my mom's whole side of the family is from Edmonton. She grew up in Peace River. So I spent all my summers with my grandma out in Edmonton. So I, there's a place in my heart. <laughs> but yeah, this has been uh, illuminating and that uh, we should definitely con- continue the conversation because I think it's worth just seeing what the art of the possible is. We hope you enjoyed listening to our chat with Alta ML and specifically learning about their unique ways of working with clients as well as approaching projects in a bite-sized way. We look forward to next time. <laughs>